stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon, it's 1.05 p.m. and you're live on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. This is your host, Kingsley Kipuri. As usual, I'm here with my partner in crime, Greg. Greg, always good to have you here. Thanks for having me again, Kingsley. Uh, fantastic. Today we've got quite a packed show on. Uh, we'll be talking about quite a lot. So first we'll be talking about uh, some of the issues we're having in healthcare and especially spotlighting um, what's going on in the free state. Um, in addition, we'll be looking to what people are describing as a build-up to a water crisis in the country. And lastly, we'll be talking about issues with Uber. Um, the taxi service and whether it's unfair competition or just or just healthy competition and that's and that's something we'll be looking at. Um, firstly, Greg, just let's talk a bit about the the free state. I know you've I know you've been following this, following this slightly, but some really really worrying reports coming out of coming out of what's happening in the free state. Yeah, definitely. I think um at the moment we've got uh around about a hundred healthcare workers who are. Who were on trial for, for an illegal gathering last year. And at the same time, civil society organizations are holding what they're calling a private inquiry where different concerned groups can come and talk about issues challenging, uh, challenging the free state health system. Um, and as well as we're seeing some really, really horrific sort of stories, um, personal stories of experiences, uh, trying to access health services with the, with the, in the free state system. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite curious about the two things happening simultaneously. One is a trial, as you've said, of the health workers, uh, by the NPA. And the second is the commission of inquiry. Um, so now we'll be going and talking live to the, the national general secretary of the treatment action campaign, Anele Yawa. Anele, are you with us? Good day, my brother, and good day to you, listeners. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Um, now, Anele, I'd really like to just start with the trial where we have over 100 healthcare workers on trial. Could you give us an idea of who are they and what are the charges against them? Uh, firstly, the Congress who was supposed to start was to stand for the trial initially were 117. Okay. But after, after yesterday, uh, 23 of them agreed to enter into the plea agreement with the NPA. So all the charges against them have been dropped, and now only 94 who are continuing to pleading that they are not guilty. So the trial is still on. Uh, when I left the high court uh, today, uh, our legal team was cross-questioning the, the SAPS. Um, okay, Anele, could you give us some context? What exactly were the charges from the NPA? Firstly, uh, last year, on the 10th of July, Comdial Kerekas, who are working in different districts at first stage, uh, staged at a night vigil at the provincial offices of the DOH based on the fact that in April they received a memo from the office of the MEC which was saying that their services will be terminated and, and they wanted to get an understanding from the MEC and they requested to have a meeting with the MEC on a number of occasions. Mm. Uh, their request fell uh, into this years until First time they decided to, to stage a night vigil outside Mopelo House. Around about 1 a.m. on the 10th of July, they were arrested. So they are being charged under Gatherings Act, Section 12 of the Gatherings Act, for attending an illegal, an illegal and prohibited gathering. And the big question our, our legal team is, is arguing is to say, who prohibited the gathering? Mm. And 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 all what have you. So and between me and you, we know that uh, Section 12 of the Catalans Act was enacted during the apartheid era to suppress the voice of the black people. So at times you beginning you you begin to be shocked 
21 years after our, after our freedom, we're still having such laws which continues to dehumanize the black people under our own government. Because by this time, gathering that should have been scrapped a long time ago mm. because it didn't benefit the black people. It benefited the white people who oppressed, who oppressed us. I mean, Anela, I hear you, and it's quite worrying if they're trying to get the attention of the state and are, and are using the visual as a way to get attention and the response is, is to be tried. Uh, Anela, could you give us an idea of what the, the potential sentences are for this, what, what I suppose would be a crime, if they are found guilty? Since uh, I, I am not a legal expert, <laughs> from, from what I, I hear, if maybe they are found guilty, yeah. none of them will be jailed. It's either they will be given a, 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 a warning or, 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 or a fine. But also you need to understand these are human beings. Yeah. Should, should they be guilty, it will mean that this record will be next to their names for the rest of their life. So that's why we are saying we would like to see when the, this trial is concluded, to see everybody when they get out of the court, being free citizens of this country without a dark cloud hanging over their heads. And Ali, when I went out up to see recently the, the healthcare workers at a recent um, trial date, I noticed one thing that stood out. These, these people who are accused of these crimes seem to, in the large, be older women. How are they holding up in terms of, in terms of facing this quite daunting um, prospect of, of getting a criminal record? Uh, these comrades are strong because they have been uh, uh, conscious care workers working with communities, providing some healthcare services to uh, to to the NED people on the ground. And and some of them, they've been here for more than 10 to 15 years. They are strong in the sense that they know their constitutional rights. They know their constitution and what is right and what is not wrong, and what is not right. But based on that, they are determined to say that there is no way that we can take off uh, 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 from standing up for our rights. And at the end of the day, all what they want is to be reinstated and continue providing the services to the needy people who are being failed by the public health care system in free state. Also, you need to understand that this struggle of the criminal care workers in free state is not only about the free state. Mm. Yes, in free state they were arrested, but if you look across the country, as I'm talking to you now, uh, uh, some other criminal care workers in Pretoria, they are staging a picket in solidarity of those who are, who are, st- who are staging for a trial in free state. And if you can look at the working conditions of the criminal care workers across the country, they are being exploited. And you begin to ask yourself, why our country, the, the, the ruling party is in, is in alliance with the COSATU, that COSATU which is anti the labor program. And the way the criminal care workers are being treated and employed, it's equal to labor procuring. How do we continue to support the exploitation of the many for the benefit of the few? So the struggle of the criminal care workers is not only about the state, it is a national cry on all the criminal care workers. I mean, I hear you, Anil. It has quite far-reaching implications, not only in health, as you mentioned, in labor and in, in different provinces. Um, Anil, I'm curious, since these people were arrested, uh, or not arrested, but are now being tried, are you, is there an impact on the other community health workers? Is there any fear around them, you know, potentially standing up or, or whistleblowing or, or, or trying to hold the government to account? Do you think that maybe this, this could have implications for, for other community health workers? Can you repeat your question? I can't hear you clearly. I um, think there's a problem with your speak. <laughs> Sorry about that, Anele. Um, my question is, um, do you think that these, these um, now 94, previously 117 health workers being tried, yes. do you think this could 
in some way intimidate other communicate, uh, community health workers who are planning on either either reporting issues they're facing or trying to hold the government to account or speak up or hold protests? No. As, as I'm talking to you now, there are many engagements with some other okay. NGOs, with community health workers across the country. As to say, firstly, one needs to understand that one of the reasons that the community health workers are victimized is simply because they are not unionized. Mm. So we are saying the, 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 the important thing for the Commonwealth care workers is to, is to stand up and form their own union. Because at the present moment, there is not a single union that is interested to get them in under, the, uh, under their arm. Because at the end of the day, if you are a union member, you must be able to pay monthly subscriptions. And according, uh, according to the peanuts that they are earning, I don't think they will be able to pay monthly subscriptions. So now we are saying... As the civil society and people of South Africa, the only way that they are that the cry of the community workers can be can be listened to is only when they've got their own union, they lead their own struggles, and all what we're going to do is to support them in their own struggles because we strongly feel that what their working condition is a gross violation of human rights because most of these community workers they do door to door visiting people who are who are bedridden, people with HIV, people with tuberculosis. And, and, and MTRCP. In that process, they don't have EEE equipment, your mask, your, your, your surgical gloves, or what have you. So they get infected either by tuberculosis or, or by TB, and no one is taking irresponsibility when they are ill. Do you get me right? So well, yeah, their, conditions of, uh, their conditions of mm. employment should be, should be uh, uh, recognized like any other employee of government or, 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 or private company. So at the present moment, they are employed through NGOs. The same NGOs are not looking into consideration about the basic conditions of employment for the community care workers, which is, in our view, is a gross violation of human rights because when these community care workers are sick, it, it, they take it upon themselves to go to hospital, they don't have medical aid and all what have you. How do you accept such a situation? Yet, the owners of these NGOs they are getting fat salaries at the end of the month, sitting in, in, in fancy offices. Why these criminal workers are the ones who are doing door-to-door, providing these services to the needy people on the ground? I mean, I hear you, Anele. They provide such an important service, as you've mentioned, going door-to-door, building relationships with people in the community, visiting the bedridden. Some people who don't have families are getting, you know, their only source of emotional support and, and, and of, of course, also medical support from these from these people. I mean, we'll continue to watch the trial and we, we can really, really hope for, for a positive outcome. Uh, Anele, I'd also just like to switch and talk uh, a bit about the inquiry that's also simultaneously happening down there. Um, now there's, there's been a lot of sort of general statements about sort of inhumane and undignified treatment of, of, of patients getting public health care in the free state. Could you just paint us a picture of what the, what the quality and state of health care in the free state is right now? To be honest with you, uh, as, as I'm talking to you, I'm, 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 I'm a public health care user, even though I'm not facing the state. And what is happening in the state is, 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 is worse as compared to other provinces. Okay. As I'm talking to you now, I'm, I'm coming out of the, the hearing at University of the State. People are giving their own testimonies on how they are being faced by the health system. People are sharing some sad stories. And I will be glad if you can send your, your, your own people to come and witness when people are testifying on how they are being failed by the system. In, in some cases, people will go to the health facility 
with the hope that they will get medication and they will be told that come to it. And in some instances, people will, will, will go to hospitals and they will pretend away because there are no doctors, mm-hmm. either there are no ambulances, either there are no medical equipment to examine them on the illnesses they have. And others, they end up dying unnecessary deaths because they are being failed by the health system. We have also invited the DOH. Uh, the delegation from the Development Health came in for a few minutes. I think they could not withstand to listen the truth when people were, 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 were testifying on how they are failed by the system. And after, after they left, to my surprise, after they left, two buses with two buses full of young people came in to protest against this public uh, uh, hearing. For what reason? Nobody knows. Can you see that? So it seems, uh, it is evident that the failures of our people on the ground, some politicians, some were somehow sitting in comfort zones, they make misery of our people and how they are being failed by the health system. For reasons better known to them, all what they are doing, they are interested to, to protect their seats, they are prepared to protect their political principles on the expense of the people on the ground. If we fought against apartheid simply because it was a crime against humanity, it was not simply because people who, who were in the driving state of apartheid, it was the white people. It was simply because apartheid was evil. So now, if apartheid was evil, we fought against it. What is the difference between then and now? Because even today, people are dying in, in public health care facilities. They, they are dying undignified deaths. And our leaders are disputing the fact that the health system is falling apart and it is negatively affecting the people on the ground. What does that mean? It means that a brave man, irrespective of they are going to be victimized, they are going to be assassinated, they are going to be killed, but they have to stand up and speak push to power. Like, for instance, as an individual and many other companies within TAC and other civil society organizations, we are prepared to die standing for the truth than die standing for the evils and, uh, and the lies. So we don't care even if we can be assassinated, but we must speak truth to power. Like Steve Bigo died, like Molly Blackburn died. They fought for the constitutional rights of the people so that everybody can be treated with dignity and respect. Absolutely, Anele. Thank you. I mean, I hear you. I mean, post, post, um, post 94, I think we really, we really hoped that things like human dignity and healthcare would be available for all. But Anele, you're talking about death and being, and, and dying for, for supporting this cause and, and, and publicizing it. Are you, is, is the kind of intimidation that, 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 um, your organization and whistleblowers facing, do you think that it's, do you think that, that intimidation, violence, and death is really something that could face the people speaking about this? My issues? brother. Yes. My brother, as I'm talking to you now, I know that my phone has been packed. Wherever I go, I'm, I'm being followed. We know, if even yesterday some other people were coming to me uh, in disguise as, as if they are fighters, we know that these are intelligent people, and all what they want, they want to assassinate us simply because we are speaking truth to power. And there is no way that I can say all is well, yet people on the ground are dying. If that is the case, we'd rather die for speaking the truth than to live for speaking lies and telling lies to people. So we know, but at the present moment, I don't want to lie to you and say, so-and-so is doing this. But from the incident which happened today of two buses coming here to protest, you must ask yourself, who hired those buses? Are you, saying, are you saying, Anelia, that there were protests at this uh, health inquiry in the Free State? Are there protesters there, there against the there inquiry? Were, 
there were people who mm. were instructed by certain political leaders to come and protest here. But simply because University of Free State is a private property, the Security Department of University of Free State managed to deal with them. And mm-hmm. then the, the commission is in process now. People are giving their own testimony. Now, Nella, I think I, uh, we need to come back to the issues of the Free State Health System. And you, you mentioned earlier that it's the worst province in the country, but I think we don't... Can you elaborate more on some of the challenges um, and, and, and the real crisis in the health system? What are we actually facing? What... Is what are these patients going through that is so much worse than anywhere else, or that is that, that is so, so dire? My brother, to be to be honest with you, if for if for 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 instance you are a someone who is living with, with HIV and AIDS and you are you are on antiretroviral, we continue to a, encourage people to adhere to their treatment and to make sure that you don't miss not a single day without taking your ARVs. And normally, people are given a three-month supply so that they can go to the facility after three months or before the three-month supply comes to an end. So now what is the problem now? People go to health facilities for their three-month supply of, of, of ARVs, for instance, and they are being told to come maybe after two weeks or after, after a week. What does that mean? It means that for the whole week, people will default on their antiviral treatment, still not simply because of their own making or their own choice, but simply because of the failures of the, of the system. I don't know whether you get me right. Two people will call an ambulance, let's say, from 10 a.m. The ambulance will come, let's say, about 2 a.m. Simply because why? There are not enough ambulances. That is a challenge. People will go to the health facility early in the morning. Some, they go and stand in the queue as early as 5 a.m. So that by the time the facility is opened, they are in the first group. Because even in these facilities, they don't attend to everybody because they've got a shortage of human resources. There are no enough nurses, no enough doctors, no enough pharmacists. So it means then, if according to this particular facility, a day they attend to 50 people, irrespective of how ill are you or how serious are you, if you are 51, it means you must go back home and you will be attended only if you wake up early and be in the first group. These are the challenges that you are facing. People here are telling us stories uh, about how um, some of their family members died and all what have you. So these cannot be accepted, from, uh, uh, my brother, in, 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 in our government, in our country, 21 years after our system. So these are the failures that we are talking about. And also, in February, there was a group of doctors in state who wrote a public letter about, uh, about the, the, the gaps within the health system in state. What was the response from the politicians? The politicians just rubbished that uh, statement to say no, these people were 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 influenced by certain politicians for their own reasons, which is not true. And if you look at these uh, doctors, some of them they take money out of their own pockets, in it's either to buy surgical gloves in, or, or masks in order for them to be able to provide services to the needy people. How to accept such things? And also on the other hand, what you will notice is that politicians normally what they say here in the state is to say. Organizations like TAC are, are, are funded by certain political parties, and we as TAC were being accused of paying people on the ground to tell lies. When people are not being paid by TAC, but they speak voluntarily based on what they see on the ground prevailing. So there are these political games played by politicians to, to paint a good picture of, of what is happening, which is not true. 
It's in South Africa. With regards to the public health system, we don't have a good story to tell. We've got a bad story about death and dying in South African in, in South African public health care system. I that mean, is a problem that we have. I mean, I hear you, Anele, and, and, and so for everyone tuning in, I'd really, really like to urge you to follow the treatment action campaign um, Twitter account for some of the stories that Anele is talking about. They're live tweeting the, the inquiry. Now, Anele, you've, you've mentioned something about the role of politicians. Now, the MEC for Health in the Free State, Benny Malakwane, is, he, he, he's gone on record almost feeling like he's, he's under attack from the TAC and other organizations that are bringing up, constantly bringing up these issues about about uh, the, the the state of healthcare and his role in it, um, what 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 do you think is lacking from from the MEC and the and the sort of the political players that may have the power to to change things around here? To be honest with you, for more than a year we have been making a call to the MEC of health administrators to say MEC, here we are, we are all role players in terms of the public health system. Mm. Can we sit around the table, both as government, civil society, and other stakeholders, and see? What can be a turnaround strategy to address the problem that is mm-hmm. that we are faced with on the ground? Those calls fell into this year. It, 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 it is only about two weeks ago when we received an invitation from the office of the NEC that says, can we meet with you THC guys and sit around the table to, to discuss uh, these challenges that we are faced with, which we have welcomed. But to my surprise today, in the weekly mail, I think so, a, a newspaper in the state, there's an article about the MEC office where he is attacking TAC and also attacking this commission. However, as TAC, we are not going to pay attention to that statement because we've got an agreement with the COH that we are going to meet on the 13th. And we strongly feel that whatever that the MEC has about the commission and the role of TAC, there is no need for him to go to media and newspapers and, and, and lambastas. We are having a pending meeting. Let's sit around the table, and he must come up with all these accusations, and we are going to respond. And also on our side, we are going to present to him the report which is coming from this commission and other facts that we have on the ground and see how best can you address this thing. But the only thing that the politicians must not do is to think that people are blind, people cannot, people cannot see. You, there is a saying from Peter Tosh that you can fool all the people but you cannot fool, I mean, you, you can fool the people, but you cannot fool them all the time. Mm-hmm. And then, at the end of the day, people, their eyes are open, people can speak. There is a time, there comes a time where people will stand up as one man, mm-hmm. as, as one man to say no. Another, it is wrong, it is wrong for all politicians to say there is no problem when there is a problem. And now, speaking it's, of politicians, wait, wait, sorry, okay. sorry to interrupt you, we're just sort of running out of time now, so I want to get in a couple of further points, but speaking of politicians, the TAC and other civil society groups, I understand, um, went to speak to ANC Secretary General Guede Montasha and other ANC officials about the problems in the free, free state health system. Mm. Did that help the situation at all, and have you continued discussions with Guede Montasha? My brother, on the 28th of August 2014, we went to, to, to meet with the ANC leadership, including Utata Guede Montasha, Uchesi Tuarte, Minister Aron Motuale, this court. Who promised me, Anele Yawa, that is going to call me after they had their meeting as the national leadership of the ANC. I've tried on a number of occasions to phone Tatu Mandase up until to this moment. We are about a year now to the tornado focus. He never returned my, he never returned my calls. He never called me back. So that meeting never yielded any positive results because he never came back to us as he has, as he has promised. 
I mean, I, I hear you, Anil, and I can imagine that you know that would be quite disappointing. And I suppose that's sort of the road that brought us here to the to the inquiry. Mm-hmm. Manila, I'd like to ask about the inquiry. So it's being independently held, so it's not being run by the government. It's an independent mm-hmm. inquiry. So I'm curious, what what are you hoping for to be the, the sort of end outcomes of this inquiry? This, uh, out of this inquiry, this is an independent inquiry, which is constituted by ind- independent citizens of our country. Yeah. And we expect the inquiry after... They have listened to the people. They will they will write a report. Maybe give it to us as TAC. Give it to the MEC officers of the state. Give it to the National Minister of Health. Mm-hmm. And maybe give it to the Human Rights Commission. And maybe also give it to the public protect. Okay. Okay. So at, the, at, yes, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the the, the problems that we are faced with have to be addressed because. We strongly believe that in South Africa we've got a constitution with Section 27 of the Constitution, which, amongst other things, speaks about our right to adequate and good healthcare services, which are being violated. So someone somehow must take a lead and hold accountable those who are violating our constitutional rights. I mean, I hear you, Anele. I mean, is there uh, is there any worry that perhaps because this inquiry doesn't have the power to implement the findings, is there a worry that it maybe might fall on deaf ears? Are you confident that in going to the public protector and the Human Rights Council, are you confident that there'll be some more allies to continue to take this 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 cause forward? My brother, there is that perception. That's why some other politicians already before the commission started, they released this commission and 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 called and gave it some names. However, as TAC and progressive people of South Africa, we've got a history. During the era of President Tabombeiki and the late Minister Amandon Chabalamsimang, they used to say HIV doesn't cause AIDS. People must eat alik, people must eat beetroot. Up until we took our government to court, if it means then we have to take our deficit government to court, let it be. Because the only, the only time that our problems can be addressed it's only when we take them to court and see who is above the law of the country. I mean, Anneli, I hear you, and, and I, I mean, I really admire the resolve to to keep to keep going. And and I mean, we'll continue to watch um, not only on Twitter from the TAC account, um, but also just following the work you guys are doing down there to really highlight the the plight of of public health in the in the free state and around the country. Anneli, thank you so much, and please, please keep up the great work. Thanks, my brother, okay. and thanks to the listeners. Fantastic, thank you. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Um, we've just been talking to National General Secretary of the Treatment Action Campaign, Anele Yawa, about the state of, of, of healthcare in the free state. And there's some really, really worrying re- reports coming out of there. Um, some, some really horrifying stories, um, you know, of, of lo- people's loved ones dying in the corridors and being denied access to, to really, really basic and life-saving healthcare. Um, so um, please, please, I really urge you to, con- to, to, to follow that story um, on, on Twitter and, and through the, the TAC account. Um, we'll actually just quickly be changing topics and talk a bit about what is being described as us sort of being on the cusp of, of a water crisis in the country. So we'll be talking to um, Daily Maverick contributor uh, Nikki Moe, who should be on the line now. Nikki, can you hear us? Hello, yes, I can. Fantastic. Now, Nikki, I mean, first reading your article, I remember just first being horrified at the, at the possibility of having simultaneous load shedding and water shedding. So could you just give us a, a picture of how, how widespread? So some areas were being told already uh, limiting water supply and having water shedding. How widespread is this right now? Um. It's, it's very sporadic. Okay. Um, as I said in my article, the smaller towns are being hit hardest. Um, I understand earlier this week that the um, the Transkei area, Butterworth, Umtata, 
Iduchwa, those places mm. are battling severely with water, with water being cut off for days at a time. Um, that was the latest one I heard, but I, I'm definitely hearing reports of towns having to have water cut off for hours at a time. Okay, can we expect this to con- to continue increasing and maybe spread to more urban areas and more areas around the country? The larger areas, I think, are going to escape the worst of it because they have multiple water sources that okay. they can draw on and, and usually the water is better managed. It's the small towns where we're really, really going to hit problems, where the water management has not been good. And um, I'm sitting here in Grahamstown at the moment where it's been raining solidly for the last two days mm. um, and I hear that there has been rain in Durban. So it looks like that there have been some winter rains that have been filling up the dams. But we can't rely on that. And, you know, this is actually a problem that's been coming for quite some time. Mm. Up till now, every year, um, the water authorities have been relying on the rains to, to basically cover their mismanagement of the water. But now that the rain is getting scarce or we've had drought for a couple of years, that margin of error has worn very, very thin. And unless something changes radically, we're going to see more of this. I mean, I mean, it's sounding quite worryingly like the water management plan so far has just been, you know, open the window and hope that it rains. Could you, could you just give us some details? You say it's been coming for a while. What, what factors do you think have contributed to, to us being where we are now? It's actually a multi-layered problem. Um, we, we actually, despite the fact that South Africa is a dry country, and everybody knows it's a dry country. We get far less rainfall than the than the international average. We actually do have sufficient water. Um, there are dams, there are boreholes, um, etc. What has been happening, though, two factors at play here. The first one is that for the last 20 years, the government has been adding people to the water grid. Mm. It's been rolling out water supply. It's been installing pipes. It's been, uh, and that's a good thing. That's part of its mandate. That's what it promised to do. The problem is, it hasn't kept up with the uptake of water. So where water is being pumped out of a river, it hasn't increased the, the capacity of those pumps. Um, where dams are starting to silt up, it hasn't dredged those dams. It hasn't raised walls. Um, that's the first problem, is that the, the storage and management of our water sources has fallen behind. The second problem is that um, pipes are getting old, and either they are not being replaced or they're being badly replaced. So you get enormous quantities of burst pipes. This is probably the biggest problem we have is burst pipes, faulty water uh, taps, uh, uh, just bad management that means we waste and we lose so much water. Every day you'll hear of water gushing, millions of liters of water gushing down a road while, while the taps are dry or reservoirs overflowing because the switch that switches the pumps off doesn't work, or standpipes in townships that are just left running and the water just runs down the street until the reservoir is dry. These are the problems. So it's not so much a lack of water. If our water was managed carefully, we would not be having water shortages. And Nikki, just quickly, what... We've seen some of these water restrictions have already hit um, places in KwaZulu-Natal, and I've read about some places in Mpumalanga. What do these water restrictions look like in terms of, is it going to be like load shedding? How, how will we actually experience this? I, I think that's up to the municipality to decide. Um, Tom Gart, which is north of Durban, they have introduced voluntary water restrictions. They've said to things, things like, you mustn't water your garden or wash your car. Um, or you cannot do this between these hours, etc. So they've made them fairly voluntary restrictions, and I have threatened people with 
with fines if they mm-hmm. disobey. Um, the other thing is that municipalities put restrictors on water supply. So you'll open your tap and instead of a gush of water, you'll get a trickle of water. And okay. just okay. the fact that the water comes so slowly means it'll take you longer to use it. Mm. And then the actual, the utterly last resort is when they will actually switch off water to certain areas for hours at a time in order to let reservoirs refill. I can only imagine the sort of damage that would do, not only the inconvenience caused in the household that for, for people, but then the the damage it might do to areas, particularly farming areas that need irrigation and things like that. Irrigation is not such an issue because if you don't water your if you don't water your crops at six o'clock in the morning, you can maybe water them at eight o'clock at night. So, mm-hmm. so that's not really the issue. Where we do have an issue is where businesses and commerce and industry relies on steady water. Mm. Um, you know, especially your smaller business, like your hairdressers. Imagine you have a salon full of hair, of, of clients with, with perm solution in their hair and suddenly there's no water to, ru- to wash out the perm solution. Or you're running a small butchery and you need a constant water supply in order to wash down your counters. Otherwise, um, you know, it, it gathers bacteria. Or any of those small businesses that require water for a vital function, those are the ones that are going to battle the most. Mm. If it's a question of water shedding and you just know, okay, well, I'll fill up a bucket because I'm going to not have water between six and eight. Mm. I'll have my bath at nine and, um, you know, I'll use the bucket for, that's not the issue. The issue is where the businesses rely on a steady water supply. I mean, I hear you, Nikki, and we've seen from load shedding just the giant sort of impact on the economy something like this can have. I mean, Nikki, my final question is just, are we seeing the kind of response from the ministry and from the government that could could avert some of the situations you're talking about? Are they responding to avert the, the crisis that we could be headed for? Well, there's not really much they can do apart from saving water. Um, I think from, a, from a, an individual point of view, we really have to start changing our attitude towards water. Mm-hmm. Not let water run. Uh, think about using grey water. Think about harvesting rainwater. And it's not a short-term thing. It's not something that's going to solve itself in a year or two. I think with the growing populations we have, it's, it's, a, it's something that's going to need to be solved. Um, apart from that, the ordinary person can do very little except rely on their municipality to manage their water. The one thing we didn't mention is that a lot of our water sources are being polluted from the other side of the equation, which is the management of wastewater. We're not managing our wastewater correctly, which means that a lot of our water supply is actually being polluted, which compounds the problem. Mm-hmm. And that, but that's a different issue altogether. That's, um, that means that it, it, it cuts down, you know, for instance, if we have a river that we can utilize for fresh water, but it's badly polluted, it means there's a cost to clean that water sufficiently so that people can drink it. So it's, it's really a lose-lose situation. I mean, Nikki, I hear you, and it sounds like you would really need a multi-pronged approach, so from the consumer side and the waste management um, and, and, and so on. Uh, I mean, Nikki, thank you so much for coming on, and we'll, we'll continue to watch this and, and really, really hope that it doesn't get to a worst-case scenario. Thank you very much, and let's, uh, let's all do our rain dances, because a good rain will definitely save it often will give us time to perhaps look at managing our water better. Absolutely. Crossing fingers. Thanks so much, Nikki. Thanks. Perfect.
Um, if you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Um, thanks for everybody who's tweeting in on our brand new Twitter account at DM Show ZA. And also people are writing, reach, reaching us through WeChat. We have no remark who just wrote Zuma does not care. Um, I'm not sure we're talking about Jacob Zuma here, but I think, um, I think a lot of people are feeling that perhaps the government isn't, isn't giving some of these issues the attention that, that they deserve. Um, our next conversation is going to be about Uber. So Uber is the sort of electronically based uh, taxi service where you can simply just call a cab from your from your cell phone. It picks you up, drops you off. You don't need to carry cash. Um, it's been a big hit in KZN, um, in Durban, I think, especially in Joburg and in Cape Town, and has run into some trouble. Um, so in Cape Town, it's been about the licensing um, and and feeling like they are perhaps being targeted and deliberately not being given licenses. In Joburg, some of the issues have been around um, confrontation with some of the meter taxi drivers who feel like perhaps their 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 clientele is being is being stolen away by the taxi service. Um so we spoke to the, the GM of, of Uber Africa, Elon Litz, um just to get his 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 views on all these issues and, and see sort of Uber's standpoint. So we'll just play this interview right now. Giving us or giving me rather some statistics just about Uber in South Africa so far. So just since your launch, how many drivers do you have now? How many cars? How many trips are you doing? So we've created economic opportunity for over 2,000 drivers since our launch in South Africa. Mm. We're very confident that that number can be in excess of 15,000 over the next two years. Um, In addition to that, on the trip side, in 2014, we saw over 1 million trips booked on the platform. And in 2015, in the first six months of the year, we've already seen over 2 million trips booked on the platform. So we've really been humbled by the growth and the adoption by both riders and drivers across South Africa. I mean, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's a really strong start. And it's, I mean, it's a great service. I've used it before. It's a great service. Um, I think part of the worry is just that with the success of Uber is that, is that the, the jobs being created and the trips being taken at the expense of existing taxis, either the meter taxis or other taxis. So is it, do you think it's fair to say this is a new market being created or is it just, is it just, you know, capitalism and it's, it's killing the existing taxis all in favor of Uber? So we definitely think we're creating an, a new, larger market. I think if you look at a lot of people who use Uber on a daily basis, yep. most of them wouldn't have used meter taxi or would have used meter taxi once in a while, not on a regular basis. And Uber's far more about a, um, a service which you use on a night out with friends in the town. It maybe starts with when you're going out with friends, you're having a, something to drink and you want to do the responsible thing. But once you experience that efficiency and that ease of use, it quickly works its way into daytime and daily usage. And people adopt it as a means to get around the city. And we think at the point at, at the moment in South Africa where you can get a ride in less less than five minutes across all cities, yeah. it starts to change people's mindsets. When they start getting into a mindset of using Uber to get around instead of owning a car. So we definitely think we're creating a new industry. And it's not about making the pie smaller for existing operators. Okay. It's about making the pie bigger so more people can benefit from that pie. Okay, so you think you know more people are getting around more often and you know just getting around like more often becomes, you know, um, more regular for everybody and, and ideally the whole the whole market and the whole industry benefits. Is that the general idea? Exactly. And I think an important point to note is that Uber is an open platform. Yep. There are a number of ex-meter taxi operators who 
who use Uber on a daily basis. They use Uber to minimize their downtime. They can continue to operate in the way they did before Uber launched in the market. And it really helps them maximize their earnings. Um, we, we hopeful that other existing meter, op, uh, meter taxi operators will look to adopt Uber um, and use it to really supplement the income. It's not something which they have to do mm. on a dedicated daily basis. It's mm. something which will supplement their existing business. Okay, so exi- okay, so existing cab drivers now are earning more money also, part of that job creation. Okay, um, but I mean, don't you worry that there might be a flood in the market? So I have a, I have a day job, and after work I want to make some extra money. I start driving an Uber. The next person starts driving an Uber, and then is there a point where there's maybe too many, too many people in the in the transport side, and and you know, and less money for everyone, or is it still? Are you still insisting that the pie is getting bigger? So it's not just quite as simple yes. as just one day um, deciding that you want to become a driver on the platform. Obviously, there's um, something called a professional driver's permit, which a driver needs to obtain before we partner with him or her. In addition to that, there's a criminal background check process in there. There's comprehensive vehicle insurance, commercial insurance for the vehicle, yes. and there are the regulatory documents attached to the vehicle. So it's not a process that you can decide all of them that you want to become an Uber partner driver in South Africa. So there is that, that process to become a partner. In addition to that, um, what we've seen is that the more reliable the product becomes, mm-hmm. the more likely people are to use the service on a daily basis. And if you think about that journey of requesting a ride using the Uber application, when you open up that application and you, you see a 25-minute waiting time, mm. you're not going to be very likely to book a trip. Yeah. But as you see that waiting time reduce from 25 minutes to 10 minutes to 5 minutes, you're going to become more and more more likely to, to book a trip on the platform. And what we've seen is that the more reliable Uber becomes, the more people use the service. And the more people use the service, the more people use Uber, as silly as that sounds. But it does start to work its way into your daily usage. And as you build trust in the brand, you, you, you learn to rely upon it. Um, another big point to, to stress is that we obviously have access to, da- to data on a, a daily basis, on a weekly basis, where we can clearly monitor supply and demand metrics to ensure that demand is not outstripping supply and vice versa. Okay. It's very important that the model is sustainable to our partner drivers. And if we set up the model for failure, it's not going to build a long-term sustainable business. Okay, 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 I understand. I hear you. Um, I'm, I'm curious, are there, are there, have there been any conversations between Uber and any of the meter taxi companies at, a, at an organization level? Have there been any conversations at all? Yes, yeah, so we, we have been in discussions with um, official meter taxi associations since the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. We are trying to find a way that we can partner together with the existing industry. We don't think it's an either-or scenario. We don't think it's an environment where, where it's either Uber or taxi. We, we strongly believe that we can find a way we, where we can work together and we can create an environment where it's Uber and taxi and, and everyone then stands to benefit. Okay, so you're in conversations with them and it sounds like it's getting somewhere and you're, you're confident you think there'll be some kind of agreement there in the future. We hope for we can come to an agreement, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, this really makes me think of some of the issues we've been having in Joburg, where I think especially around Santon City, where some of the meter taxi guys have been intimidating the Uber drivers and the Uber passengers. Would you say that's more of a temporary thing while you work out these issues, or 
or do you think there's there's, there's still a bit more of that to, to 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 come, where there's this animosity almost between the Uber drivers and the meter taxi guys? Yeah, so I think a big point there is yeah. that the the incidents are still isolated. Okay. It's a small number of meter taxi operators who are involved in those acts of intimidation. Yeah. Uh, we we are very confident that we will continue engagement through official channels and find a way that we can partner with as many existing operators as possible. And we're engaging all stakeholders to ensure that we can re- resolve this issue as quickly as possible. <laughs> okay, I hear you. Um, I mean, have there been any measures to protect the drivers or protect the passengers? So, I mean, you're right, it is few and far between. But I don't know, is there is there any um, measures on your side around, yes, around safety of drivers and and passengers around this intimidation issue? Definitely. As soon as we became aware of the issues, mm-hmm. we've been in touch with Khatra and management security in the yep. area. Um, we got in touch with the SAPS, with JMPD. And in addition to that, we have um, started working with a private security company okay. who will assist drivers and riders in situations when there is potentially intimidation from me to taxi operators. So we are working very hard to resolve this. And we are very committed to ensuring that our driver partners and our riders remain safe. Okay, so Uber drivers should rest assured that there are sort of measures in place to make sure that their, their safety is put first. Definitely. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, I think one issue we have not touched on is, is the issue of legislation, especially in Cape Town. Um, I mean, Uber's recently launched a petition um, that mentions aggressive intimidation and impound, impoundments um, happening in Cape Town. And it's, it's, it seems that Uber has a sense that this is a, it's targeted. It's not really just about the license thing, but it's a target to make sure that it's as difficult, almost as difficult as possible for Uber drivers to get licenses and, and to operate. Could you just comment on that? So this is a process that should take a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, after a partner driver or an individual applies for an operating license, yet partners have been in the system for over six months now waiting for these operating licenses to be issued. These operating licenses do operate the applications do have the support of the city, yet no licenses have been issued. Um, we, we understand that in the, during the same time period, licenses have been issued to existing large fleet operators who operate large fleets of meter taxi. So there does seem to be some form of favoritism favoring the incumbent operators and shutting out entrepreneurs and owner drivers who are trying to enter the market. And on the informant side, it, it just seems rather strange that when an individual is pulled over and questioned by a metro official, the question is not, where is your operating license, but rather, are you an Uber driver or where is your iPhone? To me, that, that's quite a strange question if it mm. is just random enforcement. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I must say that does, that does sort of point towards quite a, quite a, a targeted approach. And, and has, has there been direct engagement between Uber and, and the Western Cape and Uber and, and the city of Cape Town? Yes, we continue to engage with the city, with the province. As I previously said, the city has actually um, put its support behind a number of Uber partner driver applications. And right now, these applications sit with the provincial regulatory entity. We look towards the end of this week. Mm-hmm. But, um, and we hopeful that there will be a positive outcome. We continue to engage. 
That oh, petition yes. that you mentioned earlier has yes, received yes. over 20,000 signatures. So there's been overwhelming support for that. And the intention is to deliver that petition to MEC Donald Grant just to show him the support that exists for Uber across the Western Cape. I mean, I mean, yeah. From hearing from the from the MEC and some of the people in the in Transport and Public Works, there seems there seems to be at least verbally an, an openness to engaging and an openness for everything to go smoothly. So it's quite. I'm finding it quite strange that simultaneously there seems to be progressive talks that 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 you know Uber can exist and and meter taxis can coexist, but simultaneously we're still hearing incidents of licensing not going through and of intimidation by the traffic police. So what's I don't know what's what's happening in between this. Yeah, look, I mean, that's a good question. I'm not sure what's happening. There seems to be a lack of political accountability, to be honest. No one's really willing to put their full weight behind it and ensure mm. that this process is resolved. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I mean, like you said, we'll continue to watch that, that petition and, and see if there's any influence once that's delivered. Um, I think my, my next question is more a bit broader. I mean, we've, we've seen Uber having legislative issues around the world, you know, whether whether there's been questions of whether it's a technology company or a transport company, whether the drivers are employees or contractors. Um, so, I mean, I'm not sure what the question is, but almost where, where in your, with you as an Uber employee and, and sort of being part of Uber Africa, where, where, where does it feel to you that legislation on this new technology is going to end up? Settling around the world. Are you are you seeing a so, direction of how this is going to come together? So, so currently, we we in a world where largely regulation is unfortunately lagging innovation, and yep. we're seeing we're seeing cases all over where and we where things change. It takes a while for regulation to catch up. All the yep. steps across the world where cities and countries have embraced Uber. Recently, the Philippines was the first country to embrace ride-sharing regulations. So there are a number of examples where cities have embraced Uber as they see the benefits that it brings to a city. They see that it creates more economic opportunity for drivers, and they see that riders now have a safe and reliable way to get around. So from a regulatory perspective, it's actually something which is very difficult to fight given the benefits that it brings to your city. Okay, so you're finding it's just really a matter of time and everybody's going to really just realize that the benefits outweigh the downside. Definitely. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's something we'll continue to watch here in Joburg and also in Cape Town. Um, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I suppose we hope that, you know, technology and innovation and, and sort of the best the best program for consumers wins. Um, yeah, Alan, thank you so much. I think that's really it from my side. Um, thank you for making time. I know it's late. Thank you. That was me uh, talking to Elon Litz, the, the GM of Uber Africa. Um, just a quick update on that. Our Premier Zilla uh, spoke, I think, this morning, if not yesterday, saying that they are committed to, to finding legislation that makes this work. So it sounds like there's at least provincial intention to try and try and figure out how to, how to legislate what is murky, what is slightly tech, slightly transport, and find a workable solution. I'm really sorry for the parts of the interview that was slightly choppy. Um, uh, Elon uh, from Uber has been so busy that we had to do the interview, you know, <laughs> late at night. So I think this Uber issue is really, really dominating the airwaves. And like I said, we really hope that in the end it's the best, it's the best solution for, for consumers. And whatever we figure out that it, it benefits the consumer, um, still keeps people in jobs and of course makes sure that we are not disincentivizing technology and innovation.
Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's show. Um, please, please continue to, to listen to the show. Subscribe on iTunes and share it. Please, please also follow our brand new Twitter account and, and you can get all live updates from us um, right there. We'll see you next week as usual, Tuesday to 1 to 2 p.m. Um, the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Cliffcentral.com.